0: Proud Boys feel just absolutely emboldened to continue what they're doing. They've never been told by anybody that what they're doing is wrong other than the people that they are attacking. These guys started out as a anti-immigrant, very just violently nationalist Gang. Their rhetoric has gotten way worse and more violent. They have a huge support network and nobody's doing anything to stop them. We are seeing extremist forces gathering together in the same way they've done since Unite the Right, since Trump took power really at more of a rapid clip than ever before. The Proud Boys are on a roll today and certainly the spirit of January 6 is clearly not gone anywhere.
1: Welcome to episode 138 of the Refuse Fascism podcast, a podcast brought to you by volunteers with Refuse Fascism. I'm Sam Goldman, one of those volunteers and host of the show. Refuse Fascism exposes, analyzes, and stands against the very real danger and threat of fascism coming to power in the United States. In today's episode, we're sharing an interview with Andy Campbell. Andy is a senior editor and reporter at HuffPost, focusing on crime and extremism. He is the author of We Are Proud Boys, How a Right-Wing Street Gang Ushered in a New Era of American Extremism. But first, thanks to everyone who goes the extra step and rates and reviews our show on Apple Podcasts, shares and comments on social media or YouTube, it helps us reach more listeners, and we read, everyone. So after listening to today's episode, go help us find more people who want to refuse fascism by rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts and encouraging your friends and fam who listen to do the same. It makes a great holiday travel activity. Subscribe, follow so you never miss an episode, and of course, continue all that sharing and commenting on social media. It's giving season, y'all, and I want to shout out some recent donors. Sue, Charles, Adam, Richard, Scott, thank you for supporting this show and the work of Refuse Fascism. Lovely, lovely listeners, donate $35 or more and get a Refuse Fascism beanie and want to gift a friend or loved one. Head on over to refusefascism.org, hit the donate button, and make sure to include your shipping address. Before we get into today's episode, we have to talk about where we are right now in relation to the fascist threat. I am keeping it brief or trying to because there is a lot in today's interview thanks to talking points memo we now have access to a trove of thousands of text messages mark meadows trump's former chief of staff received and sent during the post-election period it is another indictment on top of a mountain of other evidence that shows that the republic fascist party didn't merely tolerate trump but collaborated with him, including proactively, to subvert the election both before and after the January 6th insurrection. Despite what Meadows' memoir might try to convince folks, these texts, in addition to testimony given to the House January 6th committee, underscore that he was at the helm. While some of Meadows' text messages had already been made public, many had not, particularly those that were sent from and to Republican members of Congress. Here, are just two examples. Representative Jim Jordan texted Meadows that Vice President Mike Pence should disqualify electoral votes from key states to prevent a certification of Biden's victory. Meadows replied, quote, I have pushed for this, not sure it is going to happen, end quote. And Representative Ralph Norman texted Meadows on January 17th, 2021, citing a bonkers conspiracy theory about Dominion voting systems rigging the election, and declaring via text, quote, our last hope, all caps, is invoking martial Law. Marshals, spelled like the store. All caps, please urge to president to do so, double exclamation point, end quote. The text messages show he met with these officials, and that this GOP effort to subvert the election was supported by right-wing dark money groups, including the Conservative Partnership Institute which hired Meadows after Trump left office. The correspondence includes both the most high-profile and the most unhinged figures within the Republican legislative roster, with significant overlap, of course, overwhelmingly working to overturn the peaceful transfer of power in favor of fascism. In related news, the House Select January 6th committee will take up criminal referrals against Trump on at least two charges obstruction of an official proceeding of Congress, and conspiracy to defraud the United States. The select committee could pursue additional criminal referrals for Trump and others, including the charge of insurrection. The referrals will be voted on Monday during what's very likely to be their last public meeting for the panel before they end later this month. Keep in mind, referrals do not carry any legal weight or compel the Justice Department to act. Also keep in mind, Trump has roamed free for now about two years. We alerted people, we refuse fascism, to the rolling coup that Trump and his minions were carrying out and which, if we're really being honest, never stopped. Now nearly two years later, that Trump is still free to hold his fascist rallies, that he is still considered the GOP frontrunner, that proponents of the big lie hold political office that state-level GOP fascists are adopting platforms advancing a fully fascist program while also promoting the big lie highlight again the fact that this country is full of fascists and that this will not easily be resolved. Last week, we spoke with Michael Lee of The Intercept about Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter and how it fits into a larger fascist assault on our society. Little did we know that Musk would go on to target Micah just days later, making that conversation all the more prescient and worth hearing. Lee's account was suspended along with seven other leading journalists covering Muscalini, suspending their accounts as well as banning any links to alternative social media platform Mastodon, where many of those targeted by, or even just disturbed by, Elon and his fascist acolytes are flocking to. Most, not all, of these journalist accounts have been reinstated, But the message is clear. Twitter is now a site that actively welcomes Nazis and suppresses anti-fascists. And Musk will use whatever power he has to fuck with whoever he sees as an obstacle to this transformation. To his twisted mind, all the better for him if that decimates Twitter's positive value to society and puts up barriers to meaningful journalism and dissent throughout wider society as well. I think it's also worth noting the parallel between Dave Chappelle's Marley bankrupt championing of Elon Musk and the deep ties and influence that Proud Boys founder Gavin McInnes had within the quote-unquote alternative comedy scene in the early aughts, something Andy and I touch on in our combo. With that, here's my interview with Andy. So a collection of fascist figures, white nationalists, ultra-nationalist European leaders, Got together in Manhattan for the New York Young Republicans NYYRC annual gala this past weekend, where Gavin Wax, the group's president, declared total war on perceived enemies. In his remarks to a full room on Park Ave in New York's Upper East Side, he declared, quote, we want to cross the Rubicon. We want total war. We must be prepared to do battle in every arena in the media, in the courtroom, at the ballot box, and in the streets, end quote. And at the same event, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene told a crowd to cheers, applause, standing ovation, quote, I will tell you something, if Steve Bannon and I organized that in reference to January 6th, we would have won, not to mention it would have been armed, end quote. And as I read and watched videos of all of this, I thought about the Proud Boys' rise to fame on the scene at New York Metropolitan's Republican Club four years ago now, where they were invited to the Metropolitan Republican Club. Gavin McInnes was invited. He proceeded to oversee, facilitate a violent mob attack on the streets of New York. And I thought many things about this one of which I am so glad to be talking to Andy Campbell. Andy is a senior editor and reporter at Huffington Post focusing on crime and extremism, and he's the author of We Are Proud Boys, How a Right-Wing Street Gang Ushered in a New Era of American Extremism. Welcome, Andy. Thanks for coming on to the show.
0: Oh, thanks for having me. It's a real treat for me to be here.
1: So I wanted to start with a basic question. Who are the Proud Boys in maybe even more than who they are, what do they stand for? What is their ideology?
0: Well, first of all, you drew a great connection between this group and that event in Manhattan over the weekend because it reads like a Proud Boys manifesto. These guys started out as a anti-immigrant, very just violently nationalist gang on the show of Gavin McGinnis, their founder, and also the co founder of Vice Media, although he's not there anymore. Gavin McGinnis gets pushed out of Vice Media in about 2008, and he brings his audience of violent men to his new show with him, on which he pelts them with just misogynist, bigoted rhetoric. I mean, he says that women, especially working women, are responsible for the downfall of masculinity and men in general. He says that anybody can join his new group as long as they agree and respect the fact that white men had an outsized role in the success of the West. So there's a white supremacy angle there. And most of all, he wanted them to get out there and do what crusty old Republicans couldn't do and fight for GOP causes. And he made their top rank the fourth degree of four degrees. To get that top rank, you have to commit a significant act of violence or get arrested for the cause. And the cause at the time being Trump's cause, but what is now just general GOP causes. As they evolved from sort of this street gang that would show up at MAGA rallies and fight any counter protesters that they could find through different leadership and through other proud boys they grew into a more political monster they realized following their involvement in unite the right rally in 2017 where i was there and several proud boys were there including enrique tario their former chairman they realized enrique tario told me directly for this book we're going to dissolve if we are seen like the groups there at Unite the Right, which is just a hate group, just a violent hate group. We need to become more political. We need to get involved with the GOP. We need to get involved with law enforcement. And we need to pull this country to our side and project ourselves as something more patriotic, more constitutionally protected than just a violent hate group. And that's exactly what they did. They've garnered all of these relationships with Trump's inner circle, with all kinds of Republicans. By doing security for them, by working with them on their campaigns and doing a little bit of their own politicking themselves. And so they have pulled law enforcement, politicians, media onto their side to the degree where even after their outsized role in January 6th, they're continuing on their violent parade today, six years later and they're being celebrated. And like you said, the GOP is at these official events touting their exact rhetoric that they've been pushing since they started in 2016. The Proud Boys are on a roll today, and certainly the spirit of January six is clearly not gone anywhere.
1: Before I forget it, I just want to say that one of the things that strikes me as you're talking is that A lot of people right after January 6th, I think that they thought, oh, this is the nail in the coffin of that whole trend, the mob, if you will, that's done. And instead, we've seen them exit that period, battle tested, hardened, along with the Republican Party become hardened and transformed, their ranks purged of any non-MAGA, non-Trumpist Vestiges that it had left in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I think that there was this mutual support that we're seeing that I think the proud boys are really prime example of, and your book does a lot of work on it on how the legal and extra legal forces of fascism work together and the danger that that poses in their aims to, you know, beat, cheat, and terrorize their way back to power. And as Marjorie Taylor Greene made clear, to make sure that this time it's unrestrained, and even more brutal and grotesque.
0: You know, to your point, the the DOJ has 465 guilty pleas after January 6. They have Proud Boys leaders sitting in jail right now, and they have hundreds more arrests to pour over. And yet we are seeing extremist forces gathering together in the same way they've done since Unite the Right, since Trump took power, really, at more of a rapid clip than ever before. And nobody has ever rebuffed these guys. And it shows the resiliency of the Proud Boys that, you know, they can sort of move and organize and mobilize with money, with allies, and with support from the GOP in the field, despite their leadership sitting behind bars. And it also just shows that the normalization of political violence in this country, they've moved the goalposts so far at this point that a swath of Americans do believe that they are out there fighting for GOP causes, that they're doing something patriotic out there Ann Coulter, a media pundit and gremlin, wrote a blog following January 6th. It was like this salivating, loving blog titled, Thank God for the Proud Boys. And she's writing this love letter to these guys for doing security for her. That is just kind of how a lot of Republicans view these guys. I mean, they are mobilizing now following January 6th on all GOP grievances showing up at all facets of American civic life. It's not just MAGA rallies anymore. It's not just Antifa BLM events. It's children's hospitals where trans healthcare is being discussed. It's drag queen story hours across the country. And those types of events are what Tucker Carlson and Donald Trump are complaining about on day to day. So you have Tucker Carlson on Fox News complaining about drag queens. And a week later in Nevada this summer, Proud Boys show up to a public library where there is a community drag queen story hour that the community wanted and has been having for a long time. They show up armed with rifles, send parents and children fleeing, fearing for their lives, thinking there's going to be a mass shooting there. That kind of harassment and violence has been playing out week to week, all summer through today. Columbus, Ohio, a few weeks ago, you have Proud Boys joining neo Nazis, joining Patriot Prayer, and other allies in the street to cancel drag queen events. The end goal here is they've already moved past January 6th. The GOP has moved past this despite all the convictions. They are working to move the goalposts so far that all drag and LGBTQ is seen as this inherent threat by flooding the zone with. The rhetoric that MTG and the Proud Boys push forth, the groomer rhetoric, really all this shows is that prosecutions are just one part of this response. Obviously, it's done something to tamp down the Oath Keepers and a little bit to tamp down the Proud Boys, but the spirit behind January 6th is very, very much alive. And it's going to take a lot more of a cultural reset than just prosecutions to start to rein this in.
1: Exactly. I think that that last point is really important. And also to consider that the forces that unleashed this mob have yet to be held to account. There's been zero accountability there and that this won't be resolved through some arrests, even significant ones. You know, I know that I think one of the trials just started today.
0: There was uh, the second Oath Keepers trial started. The Proud Boys Um, are just about to start their sedition trial. We'll probably see the majority of that in the new year. But we will learn a lot, and I'm very excited about it. But you're right. It's not doing anything about their mobilizations, and it's not doing anything to tell them, the extremists in the street, that they're not wanted because they are wanted. They're being told that day in and day out.
1: I would also say that the notion that the courts or some sort of election result is going to just reset is we're seeing evidence every day that that isn't how it works. I think that what you were getting at with talking about these mini mobs that are going after educators, health officials, Parents and elected officials, as well, you know, like all of it, these many moms are going after proud boys and friends. I think it's interesting to see, interesting not in a positive way, interesting in a horrifying way, to see this new collaboration. Perhaps it's not that new, but I think that they're working together more so than in the past between what I consider a driving force in the Trumpian movement, which is the Christian fascists, and these more like stormtrooper, proud boy, Patriot Front type forces whipping up a special hatred against LGBTQ people and anyone who defends them and labeling folks as predators and pedophiles in how fucking dangerous that is and that yes they're playing a role in the street but they're also playing a role in the state houses and they are influencing not just through language which matters but also through influencing policy
0: i think that the other factor is that you know what January 6th showed is that there's no longer room for doubt that the Tucker Carlson's, the MTG's, the Trump's of the world know that they have this mob in the street and that their rhetoric leads to real-world violence immediately. The pipeline is so short. I mean, it was only, what, a couple days between Trump naming the FBI people who raided Mar-a-Lago and then somebody showed up with a gun to shoot up uh, an FBI field office. I mean... They know exactly at this point who they have in the field and they know what their words mean. And following January 6th, following the Club Q shooting recently, their rhetoric has gotten way worse and more violent. I mean, they are prodding these guys in real time.
1: Going back to what you were saying a little while ago, you talked about the police and the GOP more broadly. I wanted to talk about what cultural, societal, institutional support fosters the Proud Boys' continued existence as such a powerful force?
0: The first big thing is that they have their political power. In 2017, like I said, after Unite the Right, Enrique Taro decides they need to become a more political monster. He already had, at the time, a relationship with Roger Stone and a number of other Republicans in Florida. So he uses his relationship with Roger Stone to gain influence in political circles. Roger Stone told me in an interview that he'd been advising Enrique and the Proud Boys for years on how to run for elections, how to make themselves look more politically palatable. And he also advised them several times on how to get better lawyers and sort of get their way out of trouble including after that 2018 attack at the Metropolitan GOP Club in Manhattan. And so early on, these guys had the political power. They were doing security as well for people like Ann Coulter, Matt Gates, and other politicians across the country to kind of show that, hey, we're here defending you against the great Antifa scourge and BLM and all that. But they also knew that to continue what they were doing in the street, that they needed law enforcement on their side their infiltrations of law enforcement, are really the other way around, is sweeping. They use pro-police messaging at their rallies. Any rally you go to, especially those that I covered in Portland, Oregon, you'll see a line of Proud Boys, a line of counter-protesters, which often are just locals, um, not necessarily black-clad Antifa. um, But you'll see between them heavily armored police. And because the Proud Boys are carrying Blue Lives Matter banners, and other pro-police messaging, who do you think that the police are going to turn their munitions on? Always the locals, never the Proud Boys. There's this kind of inherent support that goes with whoever the police view are on their side, but also a lot of police believe in what the Proud Boys are doing, that their own, because of laws in place, that the police themselves can't do what they want to do in terms of violent enforcement, and the Proud Boys are out there for them. And so you have Proud Boys who are officers. You had two Proud Boys who were at the insurrection were also law enforcement, a father and son. And so you have Proud Boys members who are also law enforcement. And law enforcement doesn't often know what to do when it finds out that it has extremists in its ranks because, hey, it's not illegal to be a Proud Boy. And so some jurisdictions look at that and say, well, this is a free speech issue. Now, you and me, understand that this is actually a bias issue. And when you have a person of color, for example, who's standing across from an officer who's a member of a extremist gang with political violence in its rule set and white supremacy is one of its tenets, do you think they're going to get a fair shake? I don't think so. But there's no national standard to, to respond to that. And so they have that support network. Lastly, they have the biggest media on their side. I mean, they have this gamut of bigoted carnival barkers and far-right media, you know, the sort of Tim Pools of the world. They have Gavin McGuinness's violent tenets for them were first featured on Joe Rogan's podcast, who has, you know, 11 million followers. And then, of course, you have Fox News, which brings them on and supports them day to day. So they really have the trifecta When it comes to support network and all of these things are pushing this extremist machine forward, it's not just the Proud Boys. It's the entire politically violent spectrum of extremists, and none of them are doing anything to rein it in. When it does come time for Fox News to rein it in, they instead, of course, cast blame elsewhere. I mean, Tucker Carlson maintains that Antifa did January 6th. The new rhetoric on the right is that it's a fed op because Proud Boys have been infiltrated by federal officers, but that really says more about their ability to vet their own than it does about sort of the federal government leading January 6th. They have a huge support network and nobody's doing anything to stop them.
1: I think that there's a trend that I keep saying, they're not going away on their own. None of these forces are just going to slink back into the darkness from which they came. There's no reason they would. There's no evidence that they will. I think that in addition to the multitude of factors working to push this forward, there's also a sheer lack of resistance. It is so past time that people stop looking to the GOP to rein itself in, to find its, what is the phrase, like truer angels or something like that, (laughs) whatever the phrase is, it's not going to happen. That isn't how this works. You know, you talk about kind of what's greased the wheels for them being able to propel forward in your book. You talk about the mainstream media and the role that they played in platforming and both sides in refusing to truly sound the alarm on the danger that they posed. And I definitely agree with that. Mm -hmm. I think that there's also this piece where the general public continues to just seed the ground to them.
0: The most obnoxious and really terrifying question that I get to this day as an extremism reporter is why don't we just ignore them? <laughs> They're not in my community. What do why you say to them? that? First of all, that's how we got Unite the Right. That's how we got all sorts of extremism. And in fact, when you ignore, the opposite happens. I mean, the KKK didn't fall out of the height of its power in the late 20s because the nation rebuffed them. It's because enough of the nation sort of agreed with them that they just weren't needed as a political force anymore. And it was sort of ingrained in the country. And that's what you have to worry about with the way we're headed with this rhetoric now. Always the answer has been community activism. Unite the right the government, the law enforcement did not have a major role in putting together the $25 million lawsuit that took down a lot of the architects of Unite the Right. It was local activists and researchers putting together dossiers. And what happens here with January 6th? It was not the federal government that put together thousands of dossiers on people. It was researchers and community activists and It's not law enforcement that has been tamping down piecemeal extremist mobilizations. It's been the localities. It's been people coming together and physically sometimes fighting back. Often these things get disrupted before they happen. I talk a lot to researchers in the book who spend their time online trying to destabilize these movements before they happen. You know, I think the other factor here is that it's not just ignorance But it's also the right has done a lot of successful work in stigmatizing all forms of activism to say that if you go out in the street for your community, that you're a Molotov holding anti-fascist and that you are subscribing to militant leftism, when in reality, you're doing lawful activism and standing up against the threat for your neighbors The only successful work against this has really, really come from local activism. You know, my family's conservative. And when they say, well, what about Antifa? I say, maybe join up. (laughs) It's really about local activism.
1: I have a lot of unity with you. I think there is a need for not my neighborhood kind of thing, but there's also not in anybody's neighborhood. Oh, yeah. Getting people to get out of this, and it's really hard. My block, my zip code. No, this shouldn't be anywhere. This hate should not have a home anywhere. Related to this, as I was reading your book, I was nodding and underlining and underlining. There was a section where you were talking about drawing the connection between researchers like yourself, people who were journalists who were on the ground, activists who were on the ground. They knew that Unite the Right was going to be what the Unite the Right was. They knew January 6th was going to happen because they were saying it both times. And each of those times there was like, a we didn't know this was going to happen. How'd this happen? (gasps) Surprise. And that happens. And at the same time, normalization happens. This is just the way we do things. And I kind of have a hard time wrapping my head around. To me, these are very like dissident ideas. This could never happen here. And this is the way we do things here. But they coexist in people's minds. Right? How does that work?
0: You're right. It's ridiculous. There's this kind of like counting game that happens with these events where it's like, okay, activists have sounded the alarm about this event that's happening in maybe Florida. They sound the alarm for a long time. It gets hundreds of activists ready to go. People go out in the street. The event ends up being nothing because the activists outnumbered the fascists that would have showed up like the Proud Boys. And then it ends up looking like nothing instead of looking like a successful blocking of an extremist event. And so this happens over and over and over again, the extremists set up, you know, an event and either it gets blocked or there is violence. And so then you have the news media and law enforcement sort of waiting for something really violent to happen so that then they can, what, go on Twitter, make a few arrests, go on Twitter and and complain, I told you so. At the same time, they're flooding the zone with so many extremist events In 2016, it was weird to see a guy wearing a Pepe flag standing next to a mom holding up a a sign and wearing a MAGA hat. And now you will see normal people, I say normal because they're not involved in any sort of group, standing alongside actual neo-Nazis and Proud Boys and Oath Keepers and other militants at everything. You're right. It's this weird thing where it's been so normalized that we expect the extremism events and we, for whatever reason, have to wait for the big ones to make any sort of movement. The normalization is such that after January 6th, and this is the one I always quote because it's so wild, but an outgoing DHS official tells the New York Times, well, we just thought the Proud Boys were a fraternal drinking organization that just gets out of hand from time to time. And that goes to show you just how successful they've been at projecting what they're doing, not as hate-fueled extremist violence, but as these reluctantly pulled into fighting fraternal organizations. It's scary to me that we are still playing this game. I'm looking at Telegram just today, and the Proud Boys are flagging six or seven different drag queen story hours across the country. There's people, I think it was an organ, somebody shot at a bar that was holding a drag queen story hour the other week. And then of course the club Q shooting and nobody on the national law enforcement level seems to be taking this seriously as a big nationwide movement. We're still even after club Q waiting for the big one to happen, but the big one is happening in small ways every day. It's hard to wrap my head around too, but I think people are desensitized to the extremist violence that we're seeing. We've already seen the big ones and we're seeing the big one played out on different stages across the country right now.
1: I was reading in relation to some of the harassment that is happening at these story hours and stuff that 12 times as many anti-LGBTQ incidents have been documented this year
0: Their end goal here, like I said, is to make it seem like all LGBTQ, all drag is groomers, is an inherent threat. And they've been successful at changing the narrative by flooding the zone with groomers to the degree that the media on the whole sees those numbers and still likens this thing to a debate as if there Mm -hmm. is a debate that these people should exist. It's been really successful in in, in moving those goalposts for sure.
1: It's genocidal at this point, as you talked about with some of the examples and things that we're seeing, it's absolutely genocidal. And I think that one of the things that I appreciated, even though I was like, oh, I don't want to read this, (laughs) was towards the beginning of your book, you make us confront Gavin McInnes in all of his disgusting existence. Mm -hmm. I remember being like, ick by vice. It's just misogyny, Mm -hmm. but packaged in like a trendy way, or I don't know. I think that there's a thorough line between like the roots of his absolutely toxic patriarchy and the joy of debasing women. Mm -hmm. And now their focused attention To the harassment and terror inflicting on not only trans folks, although that's definitely a target, but the entire LGBTQ community.
0: Absolutely. From the start, Gavin McGinnis was very, very popular back in the early aughts when the misogynist rhetoric was all of comedy. Gavin McGinnis was friends with people like David Cross and Sarah Silverman. I just talked to somebody in uh, in media circles the other week who was like, yeah, we all hung out at Gavin McGinnis's house back in the day. He was just one of the top counterculture comedian types. But I think what happened in this show's... Although,
1: know, sorry to, to interrupt. <laughs> what was that counterculture? Like, this is what I don't get. Misogyny is the culture. That right. is the yes. culture. What... Made him counterculture. I don't understand that.
0: Counterculture in the sense that you could put cocaine and boobs on top of what the regular mainstream media was already saying. So you're right to say the mainstream media was already ragging on women really hard. (laughs) But he added the coke and the all out rape fantasies into the pages of Vice. And it was really popular among young people. So it's not counterculture in the sense that it was going against what the mainstream was doing. You are absolutely right. But I think this shows just how many steps back we've taken in the last few years. I think a lot of comedians realized that the culture was starting to grow out of that. I mean, we still have huge problems with misogyny in mainstream culture. But I think that people didn't think that that was funny anymore as it got into like the 2006, 2008 era. Gavin McGinnis gets pushed out of Vice in 2008. And he decides to double down on that and decides to make himself and his audience victims. And you see this happening with people like Dave Chappelle and all the cancel culture bros out there where they're saying, not only am I going to double down, but I am a victim in all of this, even though what I am saying is leading to real violence and real harm. And people don't find me funny anymore. He did double down. He opened up for the masses, a venue for continuing that violent, hateful, bigoted Discussion and it's just spread like wildfire into polite conversation among politicians. That's where it's scary. And I think Gavin, and really, you know, the sort of right wing media ecosystem has had a huge part in making it comfortable to talk about this stuff, making it comfortable for Fox News to immediately after the Club Q shooting just keep on pushing the anti LGBTQ rhetoric. It's disgusting and terrifying. And it It should be disqualifying. I can't believe that these things are allowed to be said on mainstream media now, but you're right. The Gavin McGinnis rhetoric that may have been too hot for TV back in the day is TV now.
1: You and your book talking about how bright, bright, bright the Proud Boys future is. Talk to us a little bit about (laughs) why.
0: Through these support networks, the Proud Boys feel just absolutely emboldened to continue what they're doing. They've never been told by anybody that what they're doing is wrong other than the people that they are attacking. Again, throughout this year and throughout last year, they've been mobilizing on the rights grievances with heightened frequency, even after January 6th. If you look at the data of the events that they're doing, it's not just that they are hosting their own Proud Boy events anymore. They are just going out where they're told to go and latching on to any movements that they can. And they're being celebrated for that. Their events are there. But even if the Proud Boys somehow became illegal and there's no domestic terrorism statute or otherwise, it's going to make them illegal tomorrow. But even if they dissolved or it became too difficult for them to stay a group, the, the playbook that they've written for extremism and helped to write for this moment in American extremism is such that it's okay to go out there and fight for what you believe in, Even if what you believe in is violent bigotry, anti-democratic sentiment, enough of the country, enough jurisdictions are allowing this to be seen as political discourse and that it's constitutionally protected. And that's another way that they have normalized violence in this country is that we have gotten to a point prior to Trump where if you are committing violence on behalf of a political party, you are especially when it's physical and in a city or a locale, you're not going to have a good time. And now they're still getting permits for their events, which is just absolutely beyond me. Now, Meanwhile,
1: those of us who are doing it in the name of justice... You get your permits denied left and right.
0: They're arresting reporters. They're yeah. arresting activists. They're you're arresting locals. Like I said, the, it doesn't matter what grievances it, it is. They're going after people. And so between the stand back, stand by moment with Trump and January 6th, he was obviously very anti-media, calling media the enemy of the people. The attacks on journalists in that period skyrocketed and absolutely nothing happened to the extremist factions committing this violence. And so... You have such a normalization that it doesn't matter whether it's the Proud Boys doing it. What matters is that we are not responding to it in any significant way. We're seeing that all the prosecutions, all of the investigations, the January 6 committees are not moving the needle in terms of killing the underlying problem. Part of that is half of the country is ignorant about the problem itself. Over the years, I watched so many House hearings on extremist violence, racist violence, and every single one of those hearings was derailed by the Republicans invitee who would argue that white supremacist violence doesn't even exist. And then they would spend the entire hearing debating whether there is such a thing as white supremacy, and everyone became dumber Having watched that, (laughs) it's this playbook that they've helped create. And I don't want to say that they helped create the playbook of political violence or anything. Obviously, we've had brown shirt factions for Country founded
1: on genocide kind of (laughs) lays the groundwork for that.
0: But they've shown in the digital age how easy it is to recruit, how easy it is to push out a message, and how easy it is to commit extremism as long as you make the right friends in politics in the digital age.
1: Speaking of the digital age... While I have you, help us understand what is happening with Twitter, with Elon Musk. I said something on the last episode when I was talking to Michael Lee. We were talking about the public red pilling of Elon Musk. But if you really look at it, there's been seeds within him the whole time. There can be no disputing. He is inciting a violent mob.
0: 100%. And as
1: you're somebody who pays attention to like boots on the ground types of fascists, what is happening How should we understand this? What
0: is going on? I'm I'm glad you bring it up because it's so difficult to get people to care about sort of the the mini culture war that's happening on Twitter because it feels like a mini culture war, but it has so many implications that are broader than just the social media platform.
1: Yeah, people keep telling me it's petty and I should stop bringing it up, but I don't. Twitter itself
0: is petty and it's stupid and nobody should ever go on it because it sucks and it always sucked, but it it impacts policy. It impacts what's going on the news tonight. Fox News dedicates maybe 95% of what it does on grieving about the Taylor Lorenz's and other leftist uh, media people on Twitter. It drives the narrative. The other thing is just a huge platform. Everybody across the world uses it. And so for me as a journalist, it's so helpful because I know if there's an emergency in Houston that I can look up Houston and find video and people to talk to within seconds. It is such a useful tool because so many people are on it. And because so many people are on it, we spend, and when I say we, I mean reporters, activists, educators, researchers, spent so long trying to weed out People who were using that huge platform to push harmful rhetoric and violence spent so long pulling them out of there and showing the content moderators that, hey, these people are pushing hateful violence and it's leading to shootings. It's leading to extremist events and we need to stop it person by person. Those people were weeded out, shown to be abusing the terms of service on Twitter Proud Boys were banned from Twitter. So many Nazis and and just extremists were taken off there. All of that work done over the last 10 years or so is just kaput now. All of the extremists feel emboldened to come back. They're coming back in droves, sometimes on the direct invite of Elon Musk. And so we're seeing these people get platforms again. People like Milo Yiannopoulos virulent bigot who has done such harm and and pulled together so many Unite the Right style extremist events. That guy and Nick Fuentes, who may as well be straight up neo-Nazi, likens himself to Hitler and very lovingly approves of the guy. Those guys were sort of pushed out to even the fringes of the far right to the point where they still had followings, but it was not seen as good, even among far-right people, to be standing next to them because they were such extremist dinguses. And Kanye and Elon brings them back into the fold within a week. And now they are back and they are having audiences with the fucking former president. What Elon has done is doing is just turning Twitter into the new 4chan, bringing back all of those fringe voices into the fold and giving them the biggest platform in the world. What people don't understand when they think of Twitter that aren't journalists is that Twitter is the biggest platform to push what shows up on a small blog somewhere, be it 4chan or Reddit. It is the vector by which that rhetoric shows up on the news. And so by bringing back all of these extremist forces, the producers on mainstream media are looking at that and going, well, hey, Nick Fuentes is back. What's the problem with bringing him on our show? And hey, he has an audience with the president. He has an audience with the richest man in the world. Why shouldn't we have him on our show? He is normalized again. And so that is the threat here. And that's what Elon's doing. And he's laughing as he's pulling these people back because he is himself a groiper, Pepe freaking extremist he is that kid in the basement that is pulling together all of these pepe memes and pushing them out on violent hate sites
1: thanks for that andy
0: (laughs) it's bad out there (laughs) it's
1: so bad i wanted to before you go ask you two questions one is what is the story that we're not paying attention to
0: One story that I want to hear more of, I want to hear from parents who bring children to Drag Queen Story Hours because I was raised among theater kids. I was raised in music and arts and history by the greatest queens ever. And it was great for my community to have drag queens in educational positions, in entertainment positions, around kids. It was freaking awesome. We are all better off for it. I don't think that we're hearing enough positive stuff. About why these events and people are good for their communities. And also, I don't know about you, but the only people that were assaulting kids in my community were church leaders and teachers in our high school. It wasn't drag queens. I think we just need to spend a lot more time sort of understanding why the things that the right casts as bad and inherently threatening to our communities, be it activists, drag queens, LGBTQ in general, why they're actually good and why we've been doing so much work to help people understand for decades that they're good for their communities and that they have a right to exist and live free of violence.
1: Appreciate that. And besides people going and Getting your book, reading your book, talking about your book. What is one thing you think that all these decent folks who are listening, who are like, ah, this is terrible. We need to take action. What's the one thing you hope that they'll do or you encourage them to do?
0: Yeah. Erasing the stigma on activism in general, especially in your local communities. I work for a national publication in HuffPost, but I think local news is the answer to community success, and I think local activism is also a factor there. And I think going and supporting your local activism in any way possible, going and showing your racist uncle why the nice public library hosting a drag queen story event is actually good. And also when you see an extremist threat in your community, going out and activating in that in whatever way, could be online, could be in person. There are many ways to do that. It's really going to help move the needle here. Getting out there and activating is what it takes.
1: So let's make some noise, y'all. Thank you, Andy, for coming on, sharing your expertise, your perspective, your insight, and of course, your time Oh with man! Us.
0: Thank you for having these important conversations. You week to week are bringing light to so many, so many good conversations. So I appreciate it.
1: According to updated research by GLAAD and Equality Texas, at least 141 protests and threats against drag events across 47 states have happened in the United States this year. We will be running the story suggested by Andy very soon. So stay tuned. I really enjoyed this conversation and it kept me thinking. One thing I kept thinking about afterwards was local and community organizing. In particular, it struck me how here in the US, it's very common to hear people framing their opposition to fascist politics in terms of not in my city or hate has no home here. And talking about how the best we can do, the most important thing we can do is organize locally when these fascists show their heads. And one thing that struck me is the contrast between that on the one hand, And the women and girls and others in Iran who have been heroically rising up, largely within the communities in which they live, often, not always, but often, in response to representatives and enforcers and supporters of the regime coming to their communities or to their schools, universities, but also organizing it on their own initiative. And instead of chants of not my community, they are saying death to the dictator, down with the Islamic Republic, women, life, freedom. So here in the belly of the beast, I feel we have, if anything, a heightened responsibility to not simply beat back the fascists and their enablers when they raise their heads in the communities in which we live. We have to confront what we're up against nationwide and defeat them. Community activism, local activism has an enormous place in that. But I feel it's vital to interrogate on what basis, to what end, and to not act for ourselves and ours alone, but to act for all of humanity and the planet. Thanks for listening to Refuse Fascism. We want to hear from you. Share your thoughts, questions, ideas for topics or guests, or lend a skill. Tweet me at Sam V. Goldman for as long as Twitter's a thing. Or you can drop me a line at Samantha Goldman at refusefascism.org. Leave a voicemail by visiting anchor.fm forward slash refuse dash fascism and hitting the message button. Yes, we are on Mastodon, so find us at Mastodon.world forward slash RefuseFascism. Links in the bio. Want to support the show? It's simple. Show us some love by rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts or your listening platform of choice. And of course, follow, subscribe, so you never miss an episode. You can also literally put it on your forehead with our Refuse Fascism meeting, available at refusefascism.org and start the conversation chip in and support our pod and content creation to help people understand and act to stop the fascist threat we have no sponsors and count on you whether you can give five dollars or fifty dollars it all makes a difference in producing and promoting this independent weekly podcast you can give today by visiting refusefascism.org and hitting the button. Thanks to Richie Marini, Lena Thorne, and Mark Tingleman for helping produce this episode. Thanks to incredible volunteers, we have transcripts available for each episode. So be sure to visit refusefascism.org and sign up to get them in your inbox each week. We'll be back soon. Until then, in the name of humanity, we refuse to accept a fascist America.